Greetings and salutations to everyone listening and tuning in this week for the newest Dark Spider cast, guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, I would say I'm having a pretty decent week. It's actually been kind of an eventful week as far as, you know, a couple of uh, things popping up here and there. For one, this week we saw the release of the, well, rather the 4K re release, the home media release, if you will, of the Batman. In, in anticipation for that... I got emails from both Best Buy and Walmart saying, hey, your stuff is pretty much getting ready to be shipped. And by the time you guys are listening to this, both of these items have been received. The official Steelbook as well as the 4K gift set, commemorative gift set from Walmart for the Batman. And I actually pretty much made videos on both. Uh, both are probably actually going to be up on the Niche channel. I know I, know I was kind of like ship and promote the, the niche channel but that's currently where all the video content kind of goes up and yeah it's a pretty big wig for said youtube channel because again i'm posting videos on the steelbook on this gift set the gift set video i know for a fact as the time of the recording this is doing pretty well i'm still in the process of editing the steelbook video so chances are it's already going to be live by the time this podcast li goes live uh but i'm anticipating it to do also well because i know that that this week a lot of people are looking up that steelbook or looking up that gift set to figure out um if it's really worth their money and worth their money worth their space worth of collecting especially for batman fans or 4k fans or, or steelbook fans and so those videos are doing a pretty well as far as creating them as far as pumping them out so i am a little bit on the busier side but it's a good kind of busy if that makes uh, any form of sense outside of that a couple of other things did happen to the niche channel that are pretty eventful this week for one we hit two thousand subscribers we finally hit to two thousand mark i'm actually keeping track of the exact dates for this happening and from what I can tell in that little listing that I've been kind of making for myself under my Google Keeps, the 1,000 subscriber threshold or, or mark or milestone, whatever you want to call it, which officially made me uh, be able to qualify for partnership and qualify for monetization. So it was, a bit, in my opinion, a bit more eventful to hit the 1,000 than to hit the 2,000. But I still you know, treasure them all, the, you know, kind of all the same. But I know that in, in matters of uh, heft and importance in terms of you know progressing the channel forward, the 1,000 mattered a little more because you know it, it kind of broke that ground and, and you know made me eligible. And so that happened on March 18th. Here we are uh, hitting 2,000 on March 23rd officially. So it's a few days prior to this podcast going live. So thank you to everybody who subscribed. Thank you to everybody that is listening on this podcast that is part of that channel that either is a subscriber or an avid watcher because I know that it's very possible uh, to watch certain channels on YouTube. Now, thanks to the recommendation system, it's possible that people watch YouTube channels without ever subscribing to them, uh, which is all fine. You know, this I, I we are at a point where if you watch the videos and or subscribe and or hit the thumbs up or, or you know do a combination of all these different things, then you're supporting the channel. And I think you all just the same. But you know, specifically if you subscribed and you managed to help the channel hit that specific number of 2K, 2K subscribers, then thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm in the process of trying to think if I should do some kind of commemorative video now. If I should make some kind of poll and post it on the community tab for the YouTube channel to be like, hey, what do you guys want to see me do to celebrate 2,000 subscribers? Uh, or should I wait until 2,500? Um, only because I want to go in the, I don't want to say order, but I kind of want it to be the kind of doubled. But technically, you know, from the last time that I hit a milestone, which would technically be 2,000. But 
let me tell let me put it this way whether i celebrate 2000 or 2500 the next milestone that i'll celebrate with some kind of again commemorative video i want it to be 5000 i don't want it to be every 1000 no 2000 is a nice like doubled uh number from the last time which is obviously 1000 but from the going forward i rather than 2500 or th even 3000 5,000 is a bit more worth the, the time because after that, I'm like, I don't want to, you know, after hitting the 2,000, every 1,000, it's going to be like, well, I have to make like three other videos. No, I'd rather make just one big, very seminal video once we hit the 5,000. And then after hitting the 5,000, the next milestone, not goal, because after this, no subscriber numbers like this are not really goals. They're more so like milestones. You know, there's things to celebrate, but they're not things that need to happen. It doesn't need to happen. Um, as far as subscribers now. now, what needs to happen is for the content to get better, and that's on me. <laughs> as far as production, as far as getting it out there, you know, refining my skills, etc. That's all on me. Uh, but as far as these milestones, what the way I looked at it, I for the longest time, especially since I created the channel, was of course going to be a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, and then after five thousand, doubling that to ten thousand, and then honestly, after ten thousand, maybe twenty five thousand, and after twenty five. 50,000 after 50,000, 100,000. After that, I'll probably just stop counting. <laughs> um, ideally, pragmatically, if you will. Um, but yeah, we hit that milestone. And then just to make things uh, even crazier on Monday, because it was on Monday when I specifically, when all this happened. In fact, I, I um, immortalized this and celebrated this via a tweet as well as an Instagram post that it was a pretty pretty good Monday, I will say. A really, really good Monday because I got the steelbook as well as the gift set for the Batman. I hit 2,000 subscribers. And without going into too many specifics because, you know, a lot of us like to be kind of discreet about this kind of information. But long story short, the my first, av first ever payout from YouTube as a YouTube, as a partnered YouTube content creator actually got sent to me. I know I was I, I was told that it was coming. Uh, I was told that it was going to be around this time, around this these late, late latter parts of the of the month, as far as the dates, like somewhere in the 20s, they said. Uh, but it finally happened on Monday, and it happened to be the same Monday that I hit 2,000 subscribers, and I also got my, my um, Batman f physical media that I was able to make videos out of, and I'll be getting those videos out here throughout the week. So, uh... All that stuff combined, you know, made for a pretty uh, pretty eventful Monday. And then later on that evening, I saw my girlfriend. So that kind of was the icing on the cake. Uh, so it was, a, it was a pretty good Monday. It was, a, it was a pretty good Monday. So here's to hoping that the same kind of vibe uh, rolls out here for the remainder of the week. And I'm making efforts in making that happen. Especially uh, one, one of those little things that I just kind of want to take a little moment here to go off on a tangent. I finally decided to make a different variation of scrambled eggs, inspired by the one and only Gordon Ramsay. Uh, I'll be posting like a tweet as well as you know talking about it on some Discord servers, especially servers that have a dedicated food channel. But I decided to make what's called elevated scrambled eggs via Gordon Ramsay. Uh, I'm started watching his masterclass, so I'm feeling a little inspired as far as like cooking, you know, changing things up and not making the same breakfast and the same meals every single time so i'm trying to you know like like the recipe even says in the title elevate it and so what essentially this is and i know that some people out there are probably going to hear this and be like well I've, i what are you talking about i've always done this or you should have always been doing this well hey it's revolutionary for me you know because i've never done it this way personally and now i have seen the light 
and the light comes in the form of pretty much making scrambled egg, except not beating the egg, but rather uh, folding it via spatula. So it has like an even fold. Uh, not overcooking it, uh, cooking it for like an, uh, a minute and a half or a minute and 45 seconds, and then taking it off the stove, letting it kind of sit in there without being bolstered more by the flame for about 20, 30 seconds, and then putting it back on the fire, fire, back and forth, back and forth on the stove, like Gordon Ramsay himself even said. And then the other little um, ingredients to kind of give it that zest, to give it that fluff and, and flavor and that uh, creamy uh, overture is, uh, as he put it, creme fraiche. Creme fraiche, which is a very delicatessen form of pretty much sour cream. <laughs> uh, even my girlfriend was like, you know, that's basically just sour cream. And I'm like, fancy sour cream, goddammit. <laughs> um, sadly, couldn't find it in my area. That's how ghetto of a place I live in this fucking town. And another reason for me to get out as soon as possible is that we don't have creme fraiche, despite my local Vons saying that they do. Yeah, I would go online. Uh, it was through Instacart and uh, I can't remember what other delivery service. But then even Vons themselves on their website said, oh, yeah, you know, your local Vons has it. It says right there on this street, which is about 10, 50, well, uh, about 20, 25 minutes from where I live. And I'm like, well, I could see, you know, I'm, uh, at that point, I was out and about with my girlfriend. I was definitely closer to, to the store when I was hanging out with my girlfriend. So I figured, OK, do you want to go to the grocery store? Uh, just to kind of, you know, go out and she needed a creamer anyways. So. We, I go there, I look all over the goddamn place for this thing called Vermont Creme Fraiche uh, with this, like, pink label, and I could not find it, even though the website said it's in the deli section, I, I, you know, at your store, at that specific store. Nowhere to be found. And I feel like this is happening a lot with a lot of uh, grocery stores. Like, Target did the same thing recently where I was looking for these things called Stonefire Garlic Naan Dippers, which are basically, like, garlic naan except... They're like the size of crackers, maybe just a little bit bigger, but you know, they're dippers. They're essentially made so that you can take them out of the package, dip them in some kind of sauce or cream, like sour cream or artichoke uh, dip or, you know, variations of dips. And um, couldn't find those either at my local Target, even though their site says that they had eight in stock at that specific Target, but I could not find them anywhere. I even went the extra mile of asking for a worker to be like, hey, couldn't find I checked the area where the map on the map on the app says hey check this area check this aisle I've been up and down this aisle I looked through the little crevices I can't find them and of course they gave me the textbook answer if it's not there that means we don't have it and it's a glitch and I'm like okay why even bother because I can tell that this person it's not gonna make the effort when they go back out because I can tell from I know we shouldn't be presumptuous but this girl looked like she was like barely 1920 and she's very obviously there for the for the check, you know. You can just get the vibe that they're just there um, to make it to make some money before they finally move out, <laughs> you know, or go off to college or move away to a different town, whatever. So anyways, uh, that's besides the point. I was like, okay, I give up, and so I gave up on those garlic non dippers. Then gave up, unfortunately, on the cream fresh. But then my girlfriend was like, hey, you know how I mentioned sour cream is essentially sour cream. Just grab one of those uh, Daisy uh, pouches that you can just kind of squeeze the sour cream out. And so I did. I took that. I also took a little uh, container of chives. Uh, Gordon Ramsay said, get some chives. It's creme fraiche, or I'm substituting here with sour cream. Um, and then pretty much just followed the method that only takes about five or six minutes to make these eggs. And so I folded, you know, I, I put uh, two eggs as well as a, a spoonful of butter into the pan. But I, I 
put them in there, turned the heat on, started folding in with a spatula instead of beating it with a with a spoon like I tend to do. And so once I started to see a little bit of a solidifying, that's where I was doing the whole back on, on and off again. And then finally, when I started to see the texture come through, I threw, I folded in a, another spoonful of the sour cream, uh, you know, a pinch of the chives, of course, salt and pepper, and folded it all in. And lo and behold, I was actually genuinely surprised. It started, <laughs> it actually started looking like it did in the video from Gordon Ramsay's uh, video breakdown of how to make these elevated scrambled eggs. I was like, holy shit. It actually looks like the picture. It's steaming. It's creamy. It's cooked. It's heated up. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, look runny. I'm looking all over the place. It has that bounce, that creamy texture. While at the same time, like I said, it's not running. It's not liquid. It's not nasty. Like I've seen s some other people like to eat it. My girlfriend in particular loves the over easy yolk that just runs. And I'm like, that's gross. Um, and I, and it's more prone to food poisoning. So I'm like, no, Oh, keep that away from me. Um, but the way that I made these eggs, I'm like, yo, it actually looks like the scrambled egg that Gordon Ramsay makes. Sure, it's not cream fresh, uh, as I was uh, still seeking out to be as accurate as possible. But served it, took a spoonful. I'm like, here it goes. And holy shit. I don't know if it's because of the sodium-infused nature of the salt or the butter or the sour cream. Because I actually do like sour cream. I've had sour cream on, like, tostadas and other things that... Uh, I've had in the past. So I generally do like that condiment. Uh, but I, I never thought of myself to include it in, in eggs and actually go well with eggs despite giving it a much more mashed potato-y kind of texture. The taste itself is still dope and it still has like that chivey kind of overtone because of the chives layered on top and coming in throughout. It kind of gives it that leafy, herbly kind of, uh, kind of aftertaste. But in a good way. And I've always liked chives as well. You know, I've had chives before in like things like Asian food and stuff like that. And god damn, I was like, you know what? Yes, I am most definitely going to be making these eggs. Even though I wasn't unfortunately uh, able to finish them because I, on the side, thinking that, oh, uh, it's only a couple of eggs. Let me, you know, toast a Belgian waffle from Eggo. You know, one of those uh, frozen Belgian waffles on the side. Uh, and I had no choice but to eat the Belgian waffle because I completely forgot that the waffles I bought, these Belgian waffles I bought, are chocolate. Like, all chocolate. They have chocolate chips, and they're also made out of chocolate, the actual, like, pastry itself. Which means I have to eat this, and I can't give it to my dog because it's chocolate. So, between the two, I'm like, well, I guess I could give her the, the rest of the eggs that I don't finish uh, instead of the fluffy waffle. So, next time, just focus on the eggs. Make no fluffy waffle uh, in Belgian waffle because the eggs themselves, because of the sour cream, because of the butter, they fluffed up a little bit. And they were actually much more filling than I was giving them credit to be. But otherwise, yeah. That's that, that was crazy that I had some pretty bomb eggs that I was like, you know, I'm pretty proud of myself. You know, I'm, I just wanted to take this brief moment to be proud of my eggs. God damn it. <laughs> and I'm always, I will definitely be making them in the style again. <laughs> Now, I do kind of want to throw it a little back to that night that I saw my girlfriend. No, not for that reason, but because that same night, uh, her and I went ahead and watched two particular trailers that dropped on the same day. It's interesting that we have these two trailers drop, and it's also 
uh, kind of wholesome that for the most part, for the most part, there's a couple of uh, little detriments here, but for the most part, the internet received both trailers almost kind of equally. Like whenever, when I, when these trailers dropped and I went on Twitter, I felt like there was an equal, almost equal, I really need to put emphasis on almost, almost equal amount of hype and uh, admiration for the two trailers. The first one that dropped earlier on Monday, or earlier in the day Monday, in a bit of a shadow drop because we weren't really... I know leading up to the day it had leaked. Like people were saying, oh, it leaked because it had... Uh, I think like it might have debuted during the Cannes Film Festival after Tom Cruise showed off uh, Top Gun. Or there were rumblings going around that it might have been shown in front of Top Gun at Cannes. Uh, but it finally debuted in its full HD glory, the trailer for the newest Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yes, so a lot of people are like, oh my god, there's gotta be, and, 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 by a lot of people, you know, again, this kind of goes uh, both ways, for the most part, it was received very generously, uh, positively, on online, but when me and the girlfriend saw it, along with her sister, as soon as I booted it up, they were like, oh my god, another one, and I'm like, you know, it's been a while since the last one, technically, I mean, when, when did Fallout come out, like 20, I think it was like maybe 26? 18, I think it was when uh, Fallout came out, either 2018 or 2019, because I know it came out shortly a little bit after Justice League, and Justice League was 2017. So yeah, it was in 2018. It's been four. Not only has it been four years right now since the last one, but it's gonna be five years when this one actually does come out in 2023 after getting pushed back. I want to say twice. I think it's been delayed twice. The first time was obviously because of COVID. Second time, it's partly because of COVID, but also because they are also just trying to restructure and reformat movies plus keep in mind tom cruise has kind of a say in all this thing he wants to make sure that these movies are witnessed in the in the movie theater and whenever things are looking a little testy when it comes to hospitalizations or rise in cases you know he, he he does have a say in how they these movies get released and when um it's no surprise that around the same time that mission impossible got pushed uh, Maverick also got pushed like around the same time uh, different ways i know Maverick's right around the corner here uh but you know, prior to that, I remember some time ago when they announced that Maverick was getting delayed from like, I think November or December of last year to now May, uh, it was around that same time that they pushed Mission Impossible, I think an additional year, I think it was supposed to come out later this year, but then it got punted over to 2023. So a good, a good chunk of the movie is actually already in the can, I just don't, I just know that it's probably not in its full list of the sense edited and properly in post-production. Um, in that, in this trailer kind of cements that in a way, but I would probably say this is one of my favorite action movie trailers in quite some time because it's a teaser trailer through and through, you know, it's about two minutes, but it does what is a very seminal thing for a teaser, teaser trailer to do in the, in that respect. So basically, you know, you kind of get a sense that, that you know, it opens with some narration by a character that I can't remember the name, but I recognize. I, I didn't instantly recognize the face, but something told me. Something told me in terms of like the dichotomy, especially with the framing of the shots, that I'm like, wait, wasn't this guy in the very first, very very first one, all the way back to the original Brian De Palma film? And sure enough, I someone on Twitter confirmed they they're like, oh, I live for this, and they showed these screen grabs from the new trailer of the guy talking at the beginning, looking at Ethan Hunt through what looks like a foggy kind of environment. And then they showed screenshots from the original 96 Mission Impossible, and it's the same guy. And frankly, I'm like, yo, this guy didn't need age too badly. I mean, yeah, he looks a little older, but he aged almost just as well as Tom Cruise. I was like, oh, goddamn, it's a good, it's a good uh, reason to come back, right? Um, 
But this alone kind of hit the point that this is going to be probably our most tied movie to the franchise and kind of like I'm getting a, you know, I'm sorry, this is kind of an overdone analogy, but I'm kind of getting an Endgame vibe, you know, Avengers Endgame, how Avengers Endgame was kind of paying homage and respecting and, 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 uh, paying tribute to the overall Infinity Saga way even back to the original Iron Man. This is kind of I'm getting that vibe from Dead Reckoning where it's like, hey, we're paying we're not just making another entry in the Mission Impossible movies, but we're also paying homage to the Mission Impossible movies because it's especially it being called part one, which I got to be honest, I, I don't like it when movies are being called part one from the get go. Like, let the movie come out, let the cliffhanger kind of blow us all away. And then at the end, it says part one. And then we're like, well, we got to be there next year. Um, I kind of, you know, I know it's very tough. I know sometimes they want to get in front of the story and control the narrative, kind of like, you know, when, you know, things go wrong in, in the public eye, I guess you could say. <laughs> I know that kind of took a little bit of a, of a dark turn. But at the same time, movie studios kind of act that way, where they're like, well, this shit is going to leak eventually. We might as well get in front of that by beating them to the punch and labeling the movie part one. Because uh, it really does make me wish that we would get, uh, you know, a movie, a sequel come out, and then secretly they film the third one too, and we're like, oh shit. Like, you know how awesome it would have been to witness the ending of Matrix uh, Reloaded or Back to the Future Part 2 without knowing ahead of time that there was a third one around the corner? And just witnessing the to be concluded part. And we're like, holy shit. Uh, that would have been nuts. And it would have been nuts to have seen that a little bit with Dead Reckoning, in my opinion. But uh, we get the part one moniker. And so we know that this one and the other one got filmed back to back. So yeah, part one is going to come out next year. And then part two is obviously going to come out uh, probably either in the latter half of 2023 or probably early-ish or summer-ish 2024, if I'm guessing. So it's going up against another two-parter, which is Across the Spider-Verse, which used to be called Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 and uh, Across the Spider-Verse Part 2. But the third one got renamed to Beyond the Spider-Verse. So we got two two-parters to look forward to between 2023 and 2024. I was like, that's nuts. But outside of that vibe that I'm getting of paying homage to the franchise as a whole and hearkening back to its roots with that character being brought back, um, it also does a really great way of just teasing what makes Mission Impossible so special, which is the amount of mortality that Tom Cruise puts himself through doing these death-defying stunts. And the action and the band of characters. And you get flashes of that throughout the trailer while at the same time kind of hinting at the story but never going full on like, yeah, this is what the story is all about. Like the story is actually rather still on the wraps and the trailer does nothing else to give us more of a hint of what the story is going to be doing through and through. Like you literally just see snippets of action, snippets of car chases, of characters kind of looking at each other in a in a way where it's like oh my god the shit's going down you have a uh, benji played by simon Pegg, and i can't remember his character's name but uh um uh um uh, ving rames uh character is still in there uh the whole almost the whole group is in there as well uh, vanessa kirby uh palm clemency is going to be playing a, a new character that she's in here as well and like i said sprinkled throughout is of course a bunch of action uh fist fights etc all being punctuated with the stunt, you know, all of these uh, m- most recent Mission Impossible movies ever since, uh, I'm going to say four, Ghost Protocol, has had that one shot, that one thing that it's like, 
Oh fuck! No, we get well. We got to see it for this reason. We got to see it for this one thing, especially in IMAX. That's not. That's not to say that one, two, and three didn't have little moments like that. But the trailers. Ever since that first trailer for Ghost Protocol that showed him on the side of that building in Dubai. I can't remember what the building was called. I'm sorry, but the the tallest tower in Dubai, um, scaling that thing. Ever since that first trailer teased that moment, I'm like, yep, every trailer's got to have this moment. And then Rogue Nation had him hanging off the plane. And then Fallout, uh, what was the, the one Fallout? Fallout, I think, was the helicopter chase. That was the like the big moment that we were like, ah, oh, fuck. Um, and now here with Dead Reckoning, you have the, uh, I don't know what the actual terminology of it is, but it's him riding from the woods in that bike and then just leap, literally just driving off the edge of a cliff. And then just skydiving. And here's the thing. That did look... It obviously is real. I, I can... We can kind of tell when it's CG and it's real. And this is more than likely real. Like 90% sure it's real. But what makes it terrifying is that... If for anybody who looks at that sun and goes... Whoa, he's not really that high off the ground. It's slanted. I know for a fact. That's the shit from Point Break. Where they're like... Yeah, this shit is actually kind of dangerous. Because even though you're not too far off the ground... You're going at a speed... Where that ground, especially with all those rocks, is gonna shred you to pieces if you're if you're just caught in them uh, by the slightest bit. Um, so I know how, I I'm fully aware how dangerous that stunt is. So to see Tom Cruise kind of just gl- glide down that slanted kind of uh, a- area there, it's it's gonna be something to behold. Especially if the teaser trailer didn't show us any other angles that they were able to capture with with uh, footage, whether it be body cams or some kind of over-the-head shot or someone's on the ground witnessing and going by and they kind of... That's probably the only area where they p- pulled in visual effects to kind of rotoscope those uh, cameramen, cameramen out. I, yeah, that that's what I'm down and here for, especially, like I said, in IMAX. And uh, I'm sorry, babe, I, you know, to my girlfriend, if you're yeah, as tired as you are of, of Tom Cruise... Uh, I, I gotta see this. And it's not coming out until next year. And in the meantime, we have Top Gun Maverick to kind of satiate our our stunt uh, uh, stunt itches uh, since we got Maverick here literally right around the corner. And her family is actually kind of itching to see that. And I'm like, there's only one way and one way only that we're watching Top Gun Maverick in, and that is an IMAX. So we gotta uh, schedule that down and make sure we put it down in the calendar for whatever time period we can we could go ahead and, and do that. Uh, but frankly, from the two trailers that we got on Monday, I would say this is the one that did the best job at being a trailer. The other one was for Thor Love and Thunder. Now, I don't mean to say it in a very trivialized kind of way, like, oh yeah, you know, Mission Impossible did all these great things as a trailer, and then there's Thor Love and Thunder. No, 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 it's because it came later in the day, and also not so much because of the trailer itself. The trailer is fine. It does a good job of fleshing out the movie a bit more because, as I mentioned in podcasts before, especially I think it was during season three when the first trailer came out at the beginning of April, and amongst talking about it with other people online and in person, I said that the trailer is a very good teaser. It's just a little over a minute. It kind of does a quick job of just kind of giving off the tone, giving off the vibe of what Love and Thunder is going to be about. Didn't really do much to show much of anything else. Kind of teased at some things, but it never showed gore. You know, Kristen Bale's character. It never showed um, some of the other facets of where Thor has been. And, of course, it didn't show too much of Mighty Thor, a.k.a. Jane Foster. Uh, but it, it was a good tease. It was a, It was a good tease, and I liked that trailer. 
and now we get the second trailer, which is designed. And here's the thing: is that we were kind of due for this trailer because they were waiting a while to show off that first trailer. Like we only had like three months before the movie coming out. And I was thinking to myself, like, why are they taking so long? And I thought it was something multiverse related, as far as Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Well, I mean, I don't know if this is considered a spoiler, even though it might not be, but mild spoilers here, it's not. Uh, after finally watching, that's one of the things that kind of shocked me a little bit, is watching Multiverse of Madness, finishing it, and going, well, then why did we wait so long to show a Thor Love and Thunder trailer if nothing from Multiverse of Madness affects Thor Love and Thunder? I, that was literally, you know, being that it's Marvel Studios, I was like, maybe they're waiting because there's something kind of spoiler in there. And now knowing that there was nothing in Doctor Strange that affected Thor's corner of the universe, I'm like, okay, then now I'm actually kind of concerned. And this second trailer, I think, is starting to show what that concern is. Um, it's something that's a bit more on the technical side than it is on the substantial side. This second trailer, obviously, you know, I don't got a reaction at store, so I didn't really do a reaction. I watched it with the girlfriend and not necessarily doing a, 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 a you know, a separate video or some kind of separate piece of content. So I'll just kind of disclose how I feel about the trailer here that, yeah, you still get a sense of the tone, a sense of the vibe of what Thor is trying to do. You do get a few more scenes of context with Jane, a.k.a. Mighty Thor. Um, I am one cons one su substantial concern, one thing that does relate to the writing. I just hope that I'm proven wrong here. But I'm really hoping they don't brush the whole Jane Foster aspect a little a ways. Because most recently we started to get rumblings of how long this movie is. Which is just a little shy of two hours. It's like an hour and 50 something. And I'm like okay you know that, that's not terribly bad. But you have the Guardians. Which we're only probably going to get in like the first 20 minutes to be honest. Let's all be honest with ourselves. And honestly I'm kind of glad. I'm not saying this as a bad thing. But... From the trailers and from the overall synopsis and, and kind of like what we're sensing as the as the premise of the film, it does look like the Guardians are only going to be in it for like the first 15-20 minutes. And after Thor kind of finds himself, he finally um, feels like he's coming back into the group of things, you know, losing the, you know, going from the dad bot to the god bot as Korg put it. And probably having a victory on his belt with the Guardians. Um, the Guardians and him are going to separate. You see the bulk of this trailer and the last one of him being by himself and without the Guardians. In the last trailer, you even see the Guardians take off without him and Korg. And so, because of that, it's like, yeah, the Guardians are going to go and do their, all, their own thing. They're probably going to go and uh, go into the story for Volume 3. Something that probably uh, pertains to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not Nebula, uh, Gamora. They're probably going to find Gamora. Maybe uh, Star-Lord finds her, you know, or there's some kind of beacon that turns on. They're like, well, we got to go check that out, and that's going to lead us into Volume 3. Um, but we still have to go through that small but still kind of effective arc. Uh, you have Thor kind of finding himself, and then he's probably going to come across Lady Thor, you know, Mighty Thor, uh, Jane. Um, I'm just nervous. I don't know what it is, but I just get this feeling that even though we're going to get the the trappings of like, whoa, this is your ex. How long has it been since you've seen her or their feelings? And the trailer touches on that. I'm just a little concerned that they're not going to full on explain or they're just going to brush past her receiving the powers. You know what I'm saying? Like she's just going to show up powered up and she's just going to have like a line or two saying, oh, yeah, you know, when you were off doing this with Stormbreaker during the events of 
uh, Infinity War and Endgame, I did this and I came across Mjolnir and that's it. And then the story progresses on forward and I'm like, uh, and the, 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 that's it? Okay. And the movie just kind of proceeds on forward. Because, you know, an hour and 56 minus the credits, the 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 end credits, even though we're all going to, of course, stick around for the end credits. But if we take out the credits, you're really looking at an hour and 50 flat of movie, if that makes sense. So because of that, I'm like, okay, an hour and 50, you have this, you have a little bit of the Guardians of the Beginning, you have Jane Foster, and then, as the trailer showed even further of more, Kristen Bale as Gore, the God Butcher, uh, which is also another point of contention of people talking. Now, I feel like I've seen... A good like seventy to thirty percent of seventy percent of people saying that they're digging Kristen Bale as Gore the uh, the God Butcher and his look and what he's going to be bringing to the film, and then the other thirty percent is a combination of people either being a little too negative, saying that he just looks terrible, and then the other people going a little bit on the other side of the spectrum and saying that he that no one's going to talk about anyone else in the movie except Christian Bale because it's Christian Bale. Christian Bale and I'm like guys you know can, can we uh can we turn it down like like th- this is what I was getting scared of and what I kind of expressed concern of not so much from the movie itself but rather the Marvel fan base as a whole like guys let's let's dial it back you know we don't want to end up like those Snyder verse people over there that you know have a tendency to lean on the toxic because a little bit of that is, and and um, when I say toxic, I I feel like we're getting two opposite ends of the spectrum here, where with the Snyder, you know, the Snyder fans and the DC fanboys over there, we're getting the very very ultra negative toxic, where you know their solution to everything is to compare. Like as soon as this new trailer debuted, I saw one tweet that went viral. That I'm like, of course, of fucking course, it was a tweet. I don't know who posted it, and I don't even think I deserve to mention who posted it. But it was some Snyderverse fan because they literally have the word Snyder fan or Snyderverse in their Twitter handle. But they were comparing the Zeus that we got here at the end of the trailer played by Russell Crowe to the Zeus that we saw in the Snyder cut of Justice League with the abs. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? They're comparing the two and, of course, insinuating that the Snyderverse version is better because it's more true to form. And then people were just ratioing that tweet saying, you know that technically if you want to go off of visuals, the Russell Crowe version is actually a bit more accurate because Zeus it throughout all of the more contextually accurate Greek mythology, Zeus was an asshole, a deadbeat dad, and he was literally nothing but just a drinker and an eater. He's supposed to have the guy. He's not meant to be all chiseled or whatever. He's supposed to look like... <laughs> I'm sorry, with all due respect. He's supposed to look like Russell Crowe right now. But of course, you're going to have the Snyder fan over here being like, Yeah! Yeah! So we got that spectrum, that frat boy mentality of the Snyder fans over at DC. But now, we're starting to get the overly positive toxic... Uh, uh, toxic positivity of Marvel fans where they're becoming a little arrogant to genuine problems saying that anything that Marvel puts out can do no wrong. You know, as uh, some creators have called it, the Church of Marvel. And I'm over here like, the Church of Marvel is starting to look like the cult of Marvel. You know what, you know what I'm saying? Like some of those, uh, sorry to get a little um, uh, social and political here, but you know how ever so often you have that 
church or you have that organization that's all about you know this specific religion doesn't matter what religion it is like this specific religion but the, that's that tries to emphasize a lot of like love and kindness and all that stuff but something in your you know flight or fi fight or flight instincts just tell you like something is off here something is I should probably not get myself involved here <laughs> you know what I'm saying because it has nothing to do with the religion but you just feel like these people might not be 100% there that's kind of what I'm getting a little bit now with some of the Marvel fan base where people are going a little like too positive with some things of Marvel that I'm like, eh, we should also be a little realistic. Like people are touting, you know, are talking about, like I said, certain aspects of this movie that are going to be no matter what incredible that, you know, Gore, uh, the God Butcher uh, from played by Christian Bale is going to be like amazing and i'm over here going like yeah but you know you know how many oscar winners have been involved in the mcu and we look at their characters and go eh, eh. you know you know anthony hopkins you know two now two time at the time he was only one a uh, one-time oscar winner but now he's a two-time oscar winner and when he did the first thor movie yes he really did embody odin once we got to two and three he really was just anthony hopkins with an eye patch just kind of going around being Anthony Hopkins, if that makes any kind of sense. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was just kind of on cruise control. Um, Robert Downey Jr. himself, two-time Oscar nominee. And it was I feel like it was only in the first and maybe a little bit of the second and then most definitely throughout the first Avengers uh, movie that he was generally Tony Stark. And then after a while, I started to feel like he was himself on He was good, but he was also kind of on cruise control RDJ mode. You know, I'm probably in the minority with saying that. But if I say that to these people that are part of this Marvel hierarchy, they're going to be like, man, kiss my ass. You know, yeah, you know, you don't belong here. I've seen some comments where they're like, oh, if you're going to be criticizing like that, then you don't belong here. And I'm like, so you're you legit don't want criticism for things that need to be criticized. You want it to be You want criticism to be censored. I can't speak my, my thoughts. I can't have a dialogue. Really? Is that really what we're going for here? As far as, you know, how we disclose our thoughts in video format on YouTube, how we disclose our thoughts in text format on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, etc. Is that what things are becoming? So when it comes to DC, things are toxic, negative toxicity. And then over on Marvel, we have the positive toxicity. Oh my God. It really is starting to get to a fatiguing state. But hey. It's not as fatigued and as tired as some of these visual effects artists. This is probably the only legit uh, you know, gripe that I have with this new Thor Love and Thunder trailer. That kind of piggy piggies back off of the, the widespread criticism that the She-Hulk trailer got. Which is a few of the visual effects. Now, I'll have to give them credit. Whenever Gore, by, played by Christian Bale, showed up on this trailer... The aesthetic and the visual fidelity of the shots that we got are, to me personally, are actually looking kind of cool. Like how everything just pretty much goes black and white whenever he shows up. I'm like, all right. He's kind of feeding off the vibrancy and the energy surrounding him. That's pretty cool. And from what I hear, you know, people are saying, oh, he doesn't look comic accurate because in the comics he looks a bit more animalistic. He looks more like a salamander. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's Christian Bale. You're obviously not going to cover up that face. And then there's an argument that are like, whoa, what about Dread? That's, I'm sorry, but Carl, Carl Urban versus Christian Bale. You know, who has the Oscars? Who has the prestige? You know, they're, they're not going to cover him up. I mean, let's let's be let's be business about this, right? Um, and plus, Carl Urban was a producer. He had a say to be like, I'm going to keep the helmet on. 
uh, outside of that analogy, there's this theory going around that I think is actually kind of cool that as he kills uh, gods in the movie, or he insinuates that he goes around and starts killing gods since he's known as the God Butcher, so that's a potential spoiler, in my opinion, as far as how long uh Russell Crowe's going to be in the movie. I that's not that's not you know that's not a legit spoiler. I'm just making an assumption here. It's a prediction. I'm predicting that because you have a character that's called Gore the God Butcher and you have Russell Crowe playing a minor role as Zeus in the movie, I can only speculate what's going to happen with his character to kind of show us what the stakes are for Thor himself. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying. Anyways, uh, there's a theory going around that the more Gore kills and butchers gods, the more he's going to start looking animalistic in in that nature. And, he, and hopefully by the end of the movie, he will look like he does in the comics. That would actually be a cool, um, a cool take, a cool angle. And there is, you know, some some little uh, hints and Easter eggs that I've seen saw in the trailer, especially whenever Gore showed up, that I did think were kind of interesting and cool. From a visual standpoint, specifically, uh, pretty much every shot that Gore showed up where there's that shot where he says, oh, gods must die. And he's looking uh, a little bit on the skinnier side. He has the traditional Christian Bale cheekbones. But when you cut to the shot of him saying, you're not like all the other gods I killed. And he looks like he's being, you know, he's like fighting and he's like, uh, he's showing some kind of like restraint or some kind of like uh, strenuous effort. Like he's probably fighting Thor in that moment. And he's looking a bit fuller. He's not looking as skinny. He's looking a bit fuller, and he looks like he's got stuff coming out of his mouth. And then, of course, you have the poster that shows him with the uh, cut-out, like, fangy-looking teeth that looks very similar to his salamander form, as I like to call it, salamander form, in the comics. And I'm like, eh, maybe, maybe there's some details and hints here and there that maybe that's how he's going to end up looking by the end of the movie. I'm hoping for it. I'm, I'm really genuinely hoping for it. It'll actually be a bu- bit of a bummer if they don't go for that angle. So I'm putting it here in, um, it, you know, I'm booking it here in 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 a, in, a, in a, some kind of digital format to be like, that's my prediction of where he's going and what he's probably going to be doing with uh, Zeus there. However, like I said, not everything looked all guns and roses. In the trailer, because there are a couple of shots here and there that don't look all that great. They look a little too VFX-y, a little too green screeny. The one shot that's going around Twitter where people are like, really, is the shot where he sees Jane for the first time and he's wearing that helmet. Like, where not only does the design of the helmet look a little garish, but I think the biggest criticism that people have outside of that is that it just looks fake. It looks like a digital helmet put on his face. I don't know if it was like a last minute decision to add the helmet or because it blatantly looks like he wasn't wearing it and they just added it in there. And I'm like, what is going on? It also doesn't make sense in terms of what shots we were being showed in the trailer. Like it showed him without the helmet where he's reaching for Mjolnir. Mjolnir runs away from him or flies away from him and into Jane's hands. And then he goes, Jane? But now he's got the helmet on. I'm like, what? Where's the helmet coming from? Like, what's going on? So, the context is a little weird. And then even weirder is just the actual quality of the helmet itself. Where it's like, it does kind of put into perspective. Like, why is... I know it's cheaper. I know it's it makes things a bit uh, more malleable as far as shooting, as far as uh, scheduling. But sometimes I just wonder, like, why can't you just get the physical thing? Like, it helps the performance. It helps so many different things. 
it, it's funny because around the time that we saw this store, this new trailer and this criticism, this discourse uh, was coming up on social media. Uh, me and the girlfriend also, since we were you know in front of the TV and we had the apps open, we went on Disney Plus and we watched the behind the scenes uh, documentary of Shang-Chi. And in that documentary, uh, it showed that there were some shots where um, when Wu, uh, the Mandarin, didn't have the rings on him. He had the little dots so that they can uh, use visual effects to track in the rings and add them in post later. And I'm like, what? But he's not, like, using them to fight. He's not flinging them or anything. So I'm like, why couldn't you just get the physical, the, the physical rings and just put them on? You know, like, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been... All that strenuous on the actor, you can make him lightweight. I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know everything, but at the same time, I don't know why they couldn't just use the actual physical rings in that particular moment. Like I said, I get it when he's like flinging them around and using them to fight because that's a visual effect. But when he just has them on the wrist, I'm like, why don't you just? I don't know. I don't know. I, I uh, then again, I don't know 100% everything. So, uh, they, or what the circumstances, what the context was on set, especially when they were filming Shang Chi, since the bulk of that movie was shot right when the pandemic broke. Um, so you know they had to get things kind of quickly done to avoid exposure and all that stuff. So th- there's that context there. Uh, but now with Thor Love and Thunder, you, you know, we're a couple of years into the pandemic. I'm pretty sure that there were some workarounds they could have thought of here um, now knowing the, the circumstances. So, yeah, th- that's the one thing. And now, like I said, this coming right off the heels of the criticism that the She-Hulk trailer got, it does put into perspective, like, is it time that Marvel starts slowing down? Because it does feel like they're using the same effects houses for the movies on the TV shows. And it makes you wonder, like, are they going to start cr- the way that crunch is being talked about within the gaming culture side of things are we going to start talking about crunch for visual effects in movies where we're like uh are you guys gonna have to start delaying some of these shows like i would genuinely not be surprised if they delay she hulk to be like yeah we need to give this uh this team some extra time to work on these effects for the show because if that show comes out in august and those effects are still not looking all that polished, or even worse, pr- prior to that, Thor Love and Thunder comes out on July 8th, and some of those helmet shots don't look all that great, yeah, it's going to be, we're going to have to make it a bit more vocal on Twitter to be like, at Marvel Studios, at Kevin Feige, hey guys, uh, start, you know, start, give these uh, effects houses a break, give them the time that they require, give them the manpower, or you know, the person power that they need, uh, pay them a little extra if need be. We know you guys have the money. Um, I I've seen some people already call come to the defense of Marvel to be like, whoa, this is the um, this is the wheelhouse. This is the cycle. This is the um process that works for them. Why change it? And I'm like, eventually you're gonna have to change it because just like with the gaming community, you know, after a while we're not gonna take this shit anymore. And I feel like if you poke the bear hard enough, this bear known as the Marvel community that has shown now for the past couple of months that they can be toxic, even if it's not in the negative side of things, but rather in the overly positive side of things, they can flip things on a switch and they can make that money talk. So I'm hoping that they can, you know, kind of like certain things in the medical field, (laughs) uh, they can catch it early and prevent it from making any more damage.
Now let's dive real quick into what I've been playing, and we have to because this is arguably the beefiest what I've been playing segments since I've started the podcast, to be honest, because now, n- not only do we have one, not two, but three games to go through, but one of them is actually the game in its entirety. I started and beat it in the time between last week's episode and this week's, so... There's a lot of ground to cover there. And then another is not so much a game that you can beat because it's technically in beta. So there's still a lot of facets that I need testing out. I'll try to play it a little bit more before the beta ends. And then another I just recently started. So the one that I'm going to spend a little bit more time on because it's the complete game is Ghostwire Tokyo. Continuing my Gamefly arc, <laughs> as it were. So basically, for those of you who haven't been listening to the last one or two podcasts, I started up... A um, Gamefly, I don't want to say trial, but I restarted my Gamefly subscription only because they offered me a coupon to start another month for a dollar. So a, a, a one month, one dollar, you get to check out two games at a time. And I figure, you know what, let me try to see how much I can squeeze out in that month long time. And so far, I've actually covered three games. Kirby and the Forgotten Land was the first one. My review of that is on last week's podcast. Uh, and then this week, I'm going to tackle the other two. And one of them is Ghostwire Tokyo. So, Ghostwire Tokyo came out towards the end of March, I think it was March 25th, and it was a very interesting game that was, this is a very curious game, because this game kind of came and went, um, like not many people talked about, and I've seen in some groups and some demographics and some audiences, some eyes, perceive this as a way to say that the game is trash, to say that the game is just downright bad, and it's not. Alright, I played it, I sunk about 15 hours into it, and it's not a bad game. It is not a a bad first-person game. It's almost inherently a first-person shooter, if that makes any kind of sense, except you're not really shooting a gun, you're shooting powers. Because the premise of the game is that you play as this character named Akito in Tokyo, Japan, that gets kind of overtaken by a supernatural force that made almost everybody within this fog that just kind of encompasses the city of Tokyo disappear except for Akito who happens to withstand it and the reason why is because during an accident while everything is just kind of running amok he his body is actually overtaken by a spirit that goes by the name KK and it's through the spirit that not only makes him uh, be able to kind of retain his consciousness, retain his soul when this fog kind of goes around, but also imbues him supernatural powers. It just so happens, though, that KK and Akito find themselves at a crossroads to get rid of the person who brought about the fog uh, named Hanya, Hania, I think was his name. And he has this malevolent plan to not only spread the fog even further, but has something else kind of up his sleeve. So Akito joins forces with KK not only to do, not only to take, you know, thwart this guy's plan, but also save his sister in the process. And so you think to yourself, okay, that's kind of an interesting uh, kind of take. I- except there, there's something about this game that, like I said is not bad because one key takeaway that I found kind of interesting, now granted one little asterisk I need to point out here is that obviously I'm playing the game almost two months after release, so it's a good chance that a number of patches and things have been kind of uh, released from this game, developed by Tango Works and published by Bethesda. But 
if the, if the premise doesn't sound familiar to you, then maybe the name Ghostwire Tokyo might. And, you know, somewhere, especially if you follow gaming news for the past couple of years, you probably think to yourself, oh, didn't that game get revealed some time ago where people are disappearing and things like that? And I'm like, yes, because that's also the same game that was unveiled at an E3. Uh, let me look it up here real quick. Ghostwire Tokyo was announced on E3 2019, and it was announced, here's the thing, it was in June 2019 by the director Ikumi Nakamura. Now, maybe by name you might not know who she is, but by face you'll see her and be like, oh my god, it's the it's her, it's the director that unveiled the game, and she went viral for pretty much just charming the hell out of everybody, like <laughs> her... Her, her uh, enthusiasm, her hype for the game, and how charming and, and cute she was. And when we say cute, I don't mean cute like, oh, she's a cute girl. No, 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 like, cute in the sense that you you have this, like, compelling nature about her that you can tell that she was stoked for the game. Like, she was, she, she got us hyped because of her level of hype. It was contagious. Like, she was, she, you know, she was going all, like, spooky and doing all these things, and then she would then... Uh, reveal the trailer that showed everybody disappearing in this ominous fog and for a little while there was just so much atmosphere about you know both literally and and figuratively from this trailer that it led people to believe that if it wasn't for the Tango Works and Bethesda logos a lot of people were theorizing that we were getting a Silent Hills game that was just so happened to be set in Tokyo and then after a while they revealed the, the name and we figured out that it wasn't a Silent Hill game, but it was going to have kind of like that shared DNA, that similar kind of aesthetic that feels inspired by the Silent Hill games. And so then she talked about the game and she was uh, hyped for it. That got us to be hyped for it, like, oh, a genuine horror game. And so that that's why it was so bewildering that I think just a little under a year later, so it was a, a little bit more than like maybe six months or something, I can't remember the exact time frame, she would just up and dip she left the project she left tango uh, tango gameworks she she was gone she left the project she she exited and i knew something was up now i of course to this day nobody has confirmed exactly what went down uh no one has gave a clear answer whether it be the director herself ikumi or bethesda or tango but they you know shinji mikami um, who was a produ- I think a producer and an overseer of the project, and you know they managed to bring in a different director and continue on with the project uh, towards release. I think at one point had a 2021 release window, but then got bumped obviously because of COVID to like the first uh, quarter of uh, 2022, and so I finally got its release on March 25th. In fact, they that date March 25th came kind of late. I think it was like in December or January that they said, "Oh yeah, it's coming March 25th." And we're like, "Oh okay," you know, with a gameplay deep dive but it was with this gameplay deep dive the director leaving and then it the game get okay hold on before i get ahead of myself something just felt kind of weird you know what i'm saying like just this developer who was so hyped for her own game just disappearing oh well not disappearing you know she started she's starting her own company she's working on a brand new game she's doing good but just for her to leave it's just like i don't know it's just something for me felt weird 
best case scenario, there was just creative differences and shit like that happens all the time in the gaming industry, movie industry, etc. And she just said, you know, this ain't worth it. You know, I don't want to put out something that's not me. I'm, I'm out. That's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, without going into detail, let's just say that certain companies are not acting professionally. And I'm hoping that she wasn't at the receiving end of that. And uh, she hasn't confirmed that. But of course, like I said, that's just a theory. That's just a worst case scenario hypothesis. Nothing confirmed, but I'm hoping that that's not the case. So, nevertheless, the game came out. And the best way that I can put it is that though this is a very competently ga- made game and a very technically made, uh, technically well-made game from a, like I said, technical standpoint, it's physically put together well. I hardly encountered a glitch. Uh, you know, frame rate's consistent. I get, play the game on performance mode, so it's doing 60 FPS. Um, you know, everything is sound. There was nothing, no crashes whatsoever. Nothing, you know, in the world wasn't working properly. Like, you know, things felt physically in line with you know how the physics engine and how everything kind of materialized as far as the particle effects everything on a technical level the game worked but likewise the game definitely feels like it w- like its director left you know how bohemian rhapsody the movie felt like a movie where the director left or in that case got fired and another director had to be pulled in to kind of frankenstein together ghostwire tokyo kind of feels the same way there's certain pockets in the game whether it be from a gameplay standpoint where you expect something to happen or from a story perspective where you expect something to kind of be shown rather than be told instead gets told through either some giant exposition dump or this you know dressing on the uh, on the environment that i'm like i feel like that would have been a full-blown interactive experience instead it's just like this image saying uh, this image and then you have a voiceover from uh, either kk like like i said the character that's inside of your character or some other character that's phone literally phoning you via a, a phone booth saying oh yeah this happened and i'm like that you guys are like just glossing over very you know very hefty details you know, genuinely rich storytelling that would have done a better job at being shown and being experienced rather than being told. And I can't shake the feeling that has something to do with a director leaving and someone at Bethesda or Tango said, hey, this game needs to come out by the end of fiscal year 2021, which is officially the end of March. If I'm not mistaken, for a lot of companies, that would be the end of March the following year, which is March at the end of March 2022, lo and behold, game comes out March 25th. So I suspect that there's pockets of this game. And like I said, that's on the storytelling front. There's also gameplay things that I look at and I go, I feel like if you were going to do open world, you would have gone open world. And it looks like they started going open world. And then they just stopped somewhere because they're like, we don't have the time to finish all this other stuff. So it almost feels pseudo open world. And why is it pseudo? Because you know that fog that I mentioned during the game where it's like, oh yeah, the Tokyo is covered in fog. Even though they make it clear at the beginning of the game, it's not a spoiler, this is literally in the opening cutscene, that KK's fusion with Akito was the reason why he was not overtaken by the fog. The fog still damages you when you go into it. And because of that, you have a very compact segment of Tokyo that is available at your uh, disposal. And you can't go beyond this barrier of the fog, otherwise it hurts you and it kills you. Okay, so it's not really open world. 
it's kind of pseudo open world and eventually as you progress in the game there's areas where you can lift the fog via these Tory gates that you need to cleanse yeah I, I'm not even gonna beat around the bush these Tory gates are pretty much the Ubisoft towers yeah you go around you cleanse them you defeat the enemies around the the, the Tory gates just like you kind of kill mercenaries or enemies around the towers in Far Cry games or Assassin's Creed games etc and then you liberate them and not only does this release the fog from the surrounding area but it also unveils side quests and other little mini objectives that you can do uh, okay you know so there's stuff to do kind of around this world but like I said it's not as open as it was making itself out to, to, to be and then on top of that you also have your main core gameplay loop which is the shooting mechanics of this first person you know fps kind of thing going on except you kind of have like these doctor strange <laughs> kind of mannerisms and for the most part it does feel kind of cool to execute some of these uh, moves you know you have your water elements your fire elements and your wind it's almost like you're it, it's almost like a japanese kind of last airbender type thing that's going on like a mixture of doctor strange with uh, last airbender and inherently, it feels kind of cool until I want to say two thirds of the game way through, where it doesn't feel bad, but I'm just hitting the trigger and I'm just shooting guys down, regardless of how upgraded I, I, I am. I don't know, like they didn't add, like I said, it almost feels like they started adding badass stuff, and then somewhere in the mix, they just start to pull back because they're like, we don't have time. We don't have time. The director left. She was overseeing this thing. She kind of left us with these assets. Uh, let's Frankenstein it together. So the gameplay mimics that. And don't even get me started on the boss fights where you have really awesome designs for these bosses. And this, the, I guess I can kind of utilize this as a segue for what the game really does well. Because it's not, like I said, it's not all bad. But it, the boss fights look cool because they do take inspiration and sometimes directly lift some of that original artwork and design that we saw in that reveal trailer from some time ago where it did look ominous from that original director where it did look very horror driven where you have you know these creatures that kind of look like a fusion between a cat and a dog but they have a human face and looks like something supernatural and terrifying and you're like oh my god that looks awesome then you actually start fighting the fucking thing and the game's like, oh yeah, you just need to shoot these like little core points. And then that's it. <laughs> you, you shoot the core points, you extract the core points via your wire mechanic, and then that's it. You kill the enemy. I, I, I might be wrong, but looking at almost every boss fight, oh my god, I'm just having a realization right now. I don't think I died. A single time. And that's on normal difficulty. I know I could have bumped it up. But because this is one of the games I'm renting through Gamefly. I don't want to really be here all day. You know, I want to be able to return this and move on to the next one, right? So I'm just playing on normal. I'm not playing on easy. I'm playing on normal. And I don't think I... I think I died most from falling off of buildings. Than I did from genuine enemy encounters. I'm not kidding. And that even extends to the final boss. Like, from a visual standpoint, the final boss looks awesome, and it's got, like, this set-piece kind of quality to it. But when it comes to from a fundamental mechanic as far as how to defeat the boss, it's pretty, uh, pretty rudimentary. 
It, re it really is. And that, like I said, extends to the gameplay. And that also extends to the side stuff that you can kind of go around the city. It's busy work. It can keep you busy if you're looking for, like I said, that checkbox kind of uh, gameplay loop where you're like, oh, there's so-and-so things to acquire throughout the world. There's these Jizo stats. Jizo? Is it Hizo? Or Jizo? <laughs> I think it's Hizo. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, I'm, I know I'm going to butcher some terminology here. But there's these statues that you can pray so you can level up your, your health and the amount of... Um, bullets supernatural bullets you can shoot with your whirlwind ability or your fire ability and then of course there's xp to gain from leveling up and then of course that could be utilized on skill points on your upgrade tree etc but it's just all by the numbers upgrade you know pseudo rpg or action rpg stuff and I just can't shake the feeling that this is not what was intended with this game was first reveal one of the best examples is when the fog actually takes over the people. Remember in that trailer, that revealed trailer, how ominous and foreboding it felt to have people kind of going about their business in Tokyo, you know, and all of a sudden it feels weird. It, you know, a lot of people were making comparisons to Infinity War, at the end of Infinity War Avengers, where people get snapped. It, it, you know, it kind of had still that ominous, terrifying feeling of like, holy shit, people are just disappearing and leaving their clothes behind. Is it the rapture? Is it, you know, this it legit looked scary. And uh, it, it takes its time to kind of absorb how, you know, empty Tokyo, especially being Tokyo, one of the busiest uh, cities in the world, and yet it's quiet. And you just see clothes all over the place. That sequence here in game happens in like 10 seconds. And you only see it happen to like five people on one street. You see the the fog just kind of go through this one street. You see these people running from it. They turn into, you know, like I said, empty clothes. But it's literally just like five people and it happens in like 10 seconds. And then right away, Akito gets up and he's like, what? And, you know, he's got the spirit inside him. They talk to one another. And that's it. Now, another thing that I will compliment the game is that I actually did like Akito, our main character, even though he can come, kind of come off a little, a little bitchy at the beginning. But over time, he softens up. And his relationship with KK, the spirit inside him, is actually kind of compelling, kind of charismatic. I, I, have, I had a couple of kicks out of him. Uh, but like I said, there was a lot of like been there, done that kind of areas of the game, whether it be gameplay or story-wise, that, oh man, like this is this game had potential and instead... I don't know who at Bethesda or Tango told the original director Ikumi to be like, nope, this is the game that we want to work with. And unfortunately, that's what we got. And time will only tell if we're going to get a very satisfying Silent Hills kind of horror game. Now, it, like I said, the nail in the coffin for me was realizing that the game was rated teen, not M. Because... Out of all the you know mediums out there that can kind of take advantage of like the blood and gore to really extrapolate horror is games because of its interactivity. That's not to say that a game it can only be scary with like buckets of blood or whatever. No, you know we have PG thirteen horror movies that are can still be scary, Ring, Grudge, etc. Um, and I do know that there could be a time where we can have a teen rated horror game that could still be atmospheric. And f again, hearkening to what I've been saying this entire time, that at one point it feels like they were going in a direction with this game and then somewhere when the director left, they completely abandoned the idea. There's pockets, pockets in this game where I'm like, yo, that this is it. 
Like there, you know, there's segments where you're walking down a corridor. Um, for some reason, it feels like they make Akito a purposely a slow walker. You know, he sprints rather fast, but when he walks, he just feels kind of sluggish. But at times, there is there seems like there's a reason for why they do this, and that's because there's little areas that you know buildings that you have to walk into where there's genuine atmosphere with you know they play around with the lighting. You have like. A chair stacking up uh, on top of each other in a very supernatural paranormal activity kind of way, and I'm like, there you go, you know, you're you're kind of hitting it there, but just as quickly as it kind of throws that at you, it gets rid of it. Uh, there's one side quest in particular. That I had to get a jump scare. There was only one genuine jump scare in the game that got me, and it was during a side quest, not even a main quest. It was during a side quest involving a painting because sometimes I know that paintings can be effective and can creep me out. And this one actually kind of got to me. I was like, okay, there it is. And it was just one moment out of my entire 15-hour experience. And it comes from a side quest. A side quest that probably w was Ikumi's idea or somebody that was part of Ikumi's team. And it was it just so happened to have made the final cut of the game. Yeah. And like I said, there is... It, some positivity found here. I like the chemistry between the two main characters here. Their banter back and forth. And to me, the biggest praise that I can give Ghostwire Tokyo is that it genuinely did make me want to visit Tokyo. Because the game does an excellent job, and it should, because it's you know made from there, made from Japan. Tango Gameworks and all of its creators are Japanese. There's this very faithful, very... um almost kind of homage kind of a, a approach to the way Tokyo itself, the environment, plays out. Like, there's moments that even though the fog overtook the town and kind of made its people disappear, there are some genuinely ASMR-like moments in the game where if you can find that street that just so happens to not have enemies and you hear the rain kind of falling on the awnings and on the street... It does a great job of kind of selling this atmosphere that feels kind of tranquil, almost, and peaceful. And then right around the corner, there's a market, and there you walk in, and they have, you know, made-up brands, you know, nothing official, no official branding or licensing of any kind. But you definitely get the sense that you're in Japan. You know what I'm saying? I know, I know that sounds very redundant to say because it's made by a Japanese developer, but... There's just something about the way culture comes across here in its environment that it makes me, it, like, constantly, there were so many sights and sounds and you know, descriptions of food, especially through its menus, whenever you buy snacks to be able to heal up, uh, whether it be energy drinks or, like, coffee milk. Like, what is coffee milk? And it turns out it's just be milk with coffee like we have here in the States, except it's Japanese brewed coffee and looking at the description of all these different snacks like the dango and then the um the stuff with the red bean paste and all this other like i got hungry looking at these menus because there's just so many like i can tell the developers love food because there's just so many different snacks in these menus that you can buy where i'm like yes you can definitely get a sense of the culture that i'm like yeah i, I you know once pandemic settles down i would i J J tokyo has always been on my list along with london and places to visit uh, but it, this game definitely reminded me why it's on that list to begin with because there's just so many areas of the environment that just sold me that th I really was in Tokyo. It, it, it really did, especially with the architecture of the buildings. Like I said, hearing the rain and, and my footsteps, there was like uh, some genuine tranquility to it all whenever I wasn't just 
um, you know, shooting down enemies with my wind powers. And these enemies, like I said, they have really great designs, except after a while, it, they start to get kind of repetitive a little bit. And like I said, having, you know, having these kind of cool ideas that start with a decent execution but never fully pan out. Oh, man, like, it, there was just so much great potential with Ghostwire Tokyo. And in the end, it kind of made me... Like, it, it kind of put me in a good state of mind thinking, yeah, I am so fucking glad I did not buy this and rented it through Gamefly instead. Because I was this close to buying at a full price back when I had a job. And then most recently, it went on sale for 40 bucks, And I was like, maybe? But no, I stuck to my guns, get rented it through Gamefly. And I was like, yeah, I'm probably never going to play this thing again. And I'm super glad that I rented it. Got, you know, my time with it uh even after beating the game uh i jump back in to do some of the side activities here's the thing if a game had all some side quest activities some side activities some side stuff that you can do uh, on the open world and some gameplay mechanics that the game would often encourage you to do and i never once utilized them that's got to be a problem and you know just for good measure after beating the core campaign which by the way spoils itself uh, even before you get to the ending because before you even jump into that final mission it tells you like hey these side activities these side quests you're not going to be able to do after you beat the main game and i'm like well thank you for spoiling uh the fate of a character and that's the thing is like some characters literally just disappear from the game in a very anticlimactic way and I'm like I'm willing to bet anything that there was something more here and you cut it out because you had to get this game out and the director left and they probably took those ideas with them uh, uh, with her anyways after beating the main game jump back in to do some of the side content and some of the side stuff they have little like stories and premises that are kind of compelling there's this one ghost that needs your help to cleanse this bathroom because he wants to go to the bathroom before he moves on to the next world um and like i said there's that side quest that actually got me with the jump scare via painting but after you do a handful of them you've kind of done them all especially because most of these side quests whenever you trigger them they're right they're literally right around the corner so they're very done uh in like five minutes that after a while you're just kind of like well you know, you know, there's nothing here that just kind of hooks me here. You know, once you do a good batch of them, you're kind of on your way to beating the main game. And it's good to see that the game also did a good job of handling its upgrade system in an intuitive way, especially when you're customizing the look of your character. I just wish that towards the end, some of those final cinematics were not pre-rendered and were in-game because then it was just completely dissolve my my look i had a detective conan thing going on for my main main character and then the final cutscene just gets rid of it i was like oh god damn it but yeah all in all this is most definitely a game that you're either gonna have to rent for a weekend or just wait until a very deep sale come black friday and considering that they're already marking 20 dollars off the price in some places here uh, most recently i would say that come black friday you're probably gonna be able to find it for a good a cool 20 to 25 dollars and if your backlog's looking kind of dry this could probably scratch the edge otherwise wouldn't necessarily blame you for passing it all right Uh, yeah that was a lot to talk about for one specific game so let me see if i can kind of breeze through these other two so i mentioned that that was one gamefly game the other one is tiny tina's wonderlands which i'm currently playing right now i'm actually only about four hours in so there's 
not a whole lot that I can really divulge, but for those of you who don't know, Tiny Tina's Wonderlands, that name Tiny Tina might sound a little familiar to you, and that's because that's one of the characters from the Borderlands series, specifically Borderlands 2, I think was her main introduction. And since then, she's had like a one spin-off, the Sultan Dragon Keep, and she's been in a couple, you know, big power player whenever anything Borderlands related is involved. Here, it's pretty much a spin-off where her and two other, well, three other characters, one of which is your custom-made character, are pretty much playing a Borderlands version of Dungeons & Dragons called Bunkers and & Badasses. And <laughs> it's pretty much all kind of made up in that very, you know, dungeon crawler RPG, you know, tabletop RPG style. Um, but it's pretty much a spin-off where you play as a character and you're going around through these fantasy lands called Wonderlands, except with the fundamental... Uh, Borderlands gameplay as from the looter shooters uh, mechanics to you know plundering for gear and then lots and lots of guns and then of course the shooting of the enemies as you kind of w make your way through waves of enemies uh, leading up to a boss with a chest with loot you get the idea so essentially it's more Borderlands but with a fantasy coat of paint and Tiny T Tina narrating your, almost your entire journey in a very like I said tabletop RPG kind of uh, style uh, so, so far, like I said, I'm only about four hours in, and uh, frankly, four hours is practically what you need for the game to properly open itself up in the sense that you can now kind of go through places and take on quests, whether it be the main storyline or side quests, so that you can then get your XP, level up, and if you have played a Borderlands game, a Borderlands game, like literally, like you could either go from the first one to the second one or even the third one, you're going to feel right at home with Tiny Tina's Wonderlands because that's pretty much the best way I can summarize the game thus far is that it's literally just more Borderlands except with that tabletop RPG approach. That's not inherently a bad thing. Like, saying that is kind of like saying, like, well, you know, if you've been with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, then there's nothing that I can say to deter you from watching Multiverse of Madness or any of the Avengers movies because you've been through this journey thus far, you're obviously going to, you're either going to not see those movies or you are, you know, there's barely in between that I can really say to tell you that it's a good game or it's a bad game. You know, if you, this is definitely a game for Borderlands people, which I kind of am. I really do like the series. I'm not 100% like in love with it, but I like it enough to be like, yeah, you know, a spinoff. Sure. Um, I just wasn't sure if I was going to pull the trigger, no pun intended there. I did not mean, I didn't even think about that until now. I wasn't sure if I was going to pull the trigger on it uh, uh, like day one. And then, of course, things happen with my job. And I'm like, that, that's definitely a game that could hold out until either Black Friday or if, like I said, the Gamefly arc continues. And it did. So being that I was able to return Kirby in the Forgotten Land early enough, I was like, you know what? Send me Tiny Tina. Been playing it for about four, four or five hours. Game finally opened up to where I can go through this thing called the Overworld. And once this overworld opened up, I, I thought to myself, okay, this is how they were not only able to turn this game around so quickly and come up with some uh, workarounds or loopholes of how to make this game quicker, but also release it at a... Because technically speaking, if you get the PS4 version, it's only 50 bucks. PS4 and Xbox One, it's 50 bucks. PS5 and Series X is 70 so it's the full price at 70 for current gen or next gen and then last gen or you know if you still have a PS4 current gen is actually only 50 and the reason why they were able to kind of cut a little bit of the cost is because it's not the workaround to kind of make the game for cheaper ish is that you have this thing called the overworld so 
it's not as open world as past Borderlands games have been. Now, granted, the first game wasn't even that open world to begin with, but as the series kind of evolved, you started to notice the areas becoming a bit more open, especially your more, much more centralized area. Here, you have the overworld where your character pretty much shrinks with a bobblehead, and that's your main hub that you can then go into these pockets, whether it be these city, cities or these dungeons, that then you get your traditional Borderlands gameplay with the with the guns, with the shooting, with your enemy encounters, uh, etc. And again, everything is treated in that RPG kind of style. So you have your literal treasure chest instead of your, you know, your, your metallic chest. Everything kind of has like that coat of paint like it's a Dungeons & Dragons style kind of game instead of the futuristic post-apocalyptic thing that you were dealing with in the original game. And the enemies and the characters you encounter pretty much follow suit. You know, they're all wearing that traditional kind of garb. You're talking to bards and, and tavern keepers and, and things like that. And you're, most of your enemies are skeletons in that traditional Dungeons & Dragons kind of style. And you have your enemies that, your, your animalistic enemies like your crabs. And you have your main bad guy, the Dragon Lord. I haven't looked it up, and nobody tell me, but I'm willing to bet anything it's Will Arnett voicing the star, the the Dragon Lord, which leads me to my main highlight right now with the game is that it's more like I said before, in a positive light, it really is much more Borderlands, along with the humor. The humor is still there. It, they did pull back a little bit because here's the thing: this game, just like I talked about with Ghostwire Tokyo. Contrary to the majority of the Borderlands games, this game is actually rated teen. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Rated teen instead of M like the other games. That means we're not going to get your traditional blood and gore. And it kind of makes sense because you are going into a tabletop RPG aesthetic. Characters don't blow up in a spew of blood and, and guts like they do in the original games. I don't know if there was a hidden reason for that or they was just trying to you know incorporate it into the storyline but yeah pretty much when you kill most of these enemies which like i said are just skeletons uh there's very little blood or gore and because of that it's like and also the, the language is pulled back there's almost no cussing except for just a handful of dams and hells and, and things like that but fortunately it, they they are able to prove with the wittiness of the writing that they don't necessarily need to rely on that coarse language. And yeah, there's like there's been a handful of times where they got a genuine laugh out loud moment out of me. A couple of, you know, things here or there kind of don't hit as well as they should. One of them in particular is actually Tiny Tina herself. There's times where I'm like, okay, you could you could shut up now, because you're kind of doing your shtick a little bit too much, which kind of makes me a little bit nervous for the remaining like 10 or 15 hours of the game because I heard that this is like a 15 hour experience so I'm like all right you know I could probably uh hopefully get that done by next week's episode but I'm hoping that tiny Tina herself because she is narr- you know likes like a gamekeeper narrates a dungeons and dungeons and dragons campaign she's doing the same thing and because she's kind of hit or miss with her humor and her narration, I'm hoping she doesn't become tiresome, you know, a couple of more hours in. Right now, she's okay, but I'm hoping that she doesn't, you know, get on my nerves um, before too long. But outside of that, like I said, the other characters are also kind of compelling and, and witty, and I like them. One of which, again, going back to celebrity voices, I'm pretty certain is Wanda Sykes. Um, but she, whoever it is, or if it is Wanda Sykes, she's doing a terrific job. And yeah, so far I am liking the game. It is much more Borderlands, and like I said, on the negative side, 
even though the game is pretty sound so far with the shooting feeling pretty good and, you know, there's a matter of preference as to whether or not you like some guns or some things over the others. Uh, there's also some powers that you can execute that are, like I said, very fantasy RPG tailored. Uh, I obviously went, or go, I'm going with much more fire and lightning style of uh, of powers that I can then customize. And the majority of the RPG mechanics here are still being carried on over from your traditional Borderlands fare. So that skill tree that you had in the Borderlands games where like as you uh, acquire points and you start posting them towards powers, it starts to kind of unlock more and more tiers as it kind of goes down the tree. Same exact thing here, the same way that you uh, customize weapons and you swap them for ins and outs and you drop and you break down. It's exactly the same. And I guess... For some, that could be perceived as a negative because that's the one thing I can probably pull from the four or five hours that I've played is that nothing is really standing out as a very innovative experience to warrant have made... Like, like this feels like almost like a... I don't want to say vanity project, but it almost feels like a thing where like a very uh, uh, a slightly smaller team over at Gearbox was kind of bored, <laughs> you know? And they were thinking, what if we made a Tiny Tina spinoff that's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, and probably this game was originally set to come out a little earlier, but then COVID happened, obviously, and they had to push it, push it, push it. So, so far, it feels like a game that if it was maybe released a little closer to Borderlands 3, a lot of us would have smacked with it a lot sooner, but because of COVID, now here we are almost three years later since Borderlands 3, and that's why it feels a little bit past its time, and I heard that the same thing could be said for Borderlands 3, which is so far the only Borderlands game I have not played. I have it, but it's still part of the backlog. And a lot of people, I did hear a lot of people kind of mention that, that Borderlands 3, despite being a good, well-made game, and all the shooting feels tight, and, you know, it's fundamentally sound, it still f doesn't do anything to stand out as a first-person shooter. And so far, Tiny Tina, despite the change in aesthetic and, you know, the humor being tailored to a tabletop RPG, it's not doing anything different. And like I said, that could be a positive for some people who want more Borderlands, but for others who are still looking for that hook, it has yet to be seen. Now, granted, like I said, I'm only about four or five hours in. I'm going to be diving a little deeper, uh, hopefully later on tonight. And if not, if I'm not diving into that, I'll be playing a little bit more multiverses. Especially because that beta is about to be up. I've been playing the closed beta for multiverses. And for those of you who by some chance don't know, even though it, you know it's, it's kind of out there. Multiverses is pretty much a free-to-play fighting platformer. Just think Smash Brothers except with Warner Brothers characters. So that extends from Batman and Superman from DC. Fighting Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> as well as Harley Quinn. Uh, uh, Arya from Game of Thrones, I guess, and then a couple of uh, Steven Universe characters. And so that's the, the the one thing right now is that it really is in very early forms of testing with with, with this game. You know, we have a closed beta here, and they do ha plan to have a open beta in July. So for right now, it's kind of like via invitation only, and there's only literally like today and, and it, only a couple of days at the time of this recording, and probably by the time you're listening to this, the beta is already done. And so after that, they're going to take all that data, start working and polishing the game, open beta in July, which leads me to assume that the game is probably going to formally release free-to-play, I want to say maybe August or September, maybe October. I doubt October. I, I almost want to really say early November, uh, early to mid-September, sorry. Um, that's what I meant to say. 
Uh, but I got invited to the closed beta only because you know, spoilers. Let's just say that there's been a history there, even from the beginning of the year, where I did my research and I signed up for some stuff. So I'll just leave it at that. But I've been playing. This is the first time that I get to play on console. I've been playing on the PS5 specifically, and I can honestly say, prior to earlier experiences, playing a game of this this form on console definitely feels a little bit better than PC in my humble opinion, but that, that's really subjective, you know, it really depends on what type of gamer you are, but basically it's a platformer, just like Smash, uh, or platform fighter, just like Smash, except you have these DC characters, I mean, I'm sorry, these Warner Bros. characters, including Tom and Jerry, is also thrown in there, for good measure, and essentially, it, the one other thing that is kind of interesting about this game is that you can't block, there's no blocking in the game, so even though it's a platform fighter, there's no blocking like in Smash. You have to come up with different ways to simply just not get hit and hit in return, while at the same time utilizing items and then getting your character off the platform. So if you've played Smash, there's going to be an, a severe form of familiarity found here in multiverses. And you're going to have different characters played different ways. You're going to be able to identify who's a ranged character versus who's a fighter versus who uses projectiles, who likes to use items like a sword, etc. And it's uh, still right now, I'm in the process of figuring out my main. I really like Tasmanian Devil's tornado move, while at the same time, I also like how quick Harley is with the mallet. Surprisingly, I'm not super vibing with Batman. You, you would think that I would gravitate towards Batman because I'm all about Batman, but it's a couple of times where he feels a little sluggish or he's got some weird recovery. But notice the way I'm talking about the game as far as like, oh yeah, the recovery and, and you know, trying to fine tune this thing. That's the thing, is that this is actually a pretty polished platformer, or platform fighter. Like, it really does feel like there's an awful lot of attention and care and detail behind the making of every character feeling like its own character. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you choose a character amongst this roster, despite the roster being a little bit on the small side, you definitely get a sense of every character feeling different from one another. Finn is going to feel different from Jake from Adventure Time, who's going to feel different from Steven Universe, who's going to feel... And then Superman and Batman are going to be... Even though they're both DC characters, they're going to feel different from each other. And so far, everyone feels like they like they would fight in a platformer. You know what I'm saying? Like, everybody feels like they're actually belonging. And so... So far, I'm having actually a really good time. Now, after all, it is still in beta testing. There's no single-player mode. There's no campaign where you go like through rounds of enemies. It's all about getting the core gameplay, which is you know the way each character fights, fine-tuned. And because of that, you know, only after about like 30 or 40 minutes, not only do I get to play as almost everybody in the roster, but you get to at least unlock one or two characters via achieving certain uh, objectives, gaining gold and then acquiring enough gold to then unlock some of these characters. And that's obviously where the reasoning for the game going free to play is going to be found is that yes, there are going to be microtransactions whether it be alternate costumes or different emotes, different celebratory stuff, different ring outs, you know, like when you hit a character and they hit the areas that counts as a knockout, you're going to have like little customized flames or things appearing on the screen. That's obviously where the game's going to make its money. But, you know, all cosmetic superficial stuff that you don't have to get in order to play the game and have fun with the game. Because of that, 
like I said, there's just so much attention to detail, not only on the gameplay, but also on the aesthetics. You have characters talking to each other on a personal level. Like, Batman will address Shaggy by name and actually mention something about Shaggy and his sandwiches or vice versa. And then take your pick. There's so many permutations to the conversations that I'm like, holy shit. You guys actually took the time to write this dialogue and actually had the actors voice this dialogue and you have so many actors that feel at home you have kevin conroy obviously as batman matthew lillard as shaggy it's it's insane it's the production value behind this thing is actually genuinely surprising that you know you got to give it a chance and even it's free to play so it kind of breaks my heart a little bit to see that some people are being given codes but because it's free to play, there's this stigma that it has to be bad. It's free to play. You know, if you have like 30, 40 minutes of free time, why not try it? Let's just say I know people personally that will legit be like, nah, I'm good. And I'm like, it's free to play. And you're over here wondering, what should I play? I'm like, uh, okay, that's it's kind of backwards. You know, nobody's asking you to you know, spend the money to get the extra gold so you can unlock this banner or unlock this ring out or unlock this character. You know, just play the characters that are available to you right now because there's actually a very surprising level of polish behind multiverses. Now, like I said, I know it's in closed beta right now. It's probably on its way out of closed beta, but there is going to be an open beta in July. If the, Now, that open beta, I would probably say, is probably going to be the biggest test of it all because now that they got the gameplay... And the fine-tuning of the moves and the special moves and all the different mechanics down to a T. Now it's to make sure that those servers are not utter bullshit. Because it's one thing for the gameplay to be awesome. It's going to be another to come, you know, release time. And then I can't play a match because the servers are crowded. You know, that that's going to be the next phase of this ultimate form of testing out the game. And I feel like July is probably going to be the best time to do it with this open beta. When that time comes around... I would say if you have the free time, definitely look out for multiverses because right now I'm enjoying the hell out of it. It's a really, it's a platformer that I act, oh, platform fighter. Sorry, I keep having to say that. That I actually feel, and not just because Batman's in it, but I, like I said, I actually feel like I'm maining Taz, uh, uh, Harley Quinn, and even Jake a little bit more than I even am Batman. Outside of that, it's, a platform fighter that I actually feel compelled to want to sink more time into so that I can get just get better at it. Actually get better at it and actually be part of a team or be part of a group that I can actually match up with and be like, hey, free-for-all or teams or, you know, what do you want to do? And actually continue playing it. And it's free to play, like I said. And once you get the cross-play cross uh, enabled and they're able to get those servers um down well then yeah i'm sign me up i'm all i'm all for it so there's two important news that i want to get out of the way that i really want to talk about before closing out the episode because strangely looking back now i feel like i've spent quite an awful lot of time talking about the new style of eggs that I made and the games that I've been playing and uh, everything else kind of underneath the Marvel sun. That And we even have some more Marvel-related news. This is actually kind of a very Marvel-centric episode now that I look at it. But the two news pieces... There are two news pieces that I definitely sincerely want to talk about. There were a couple of other things that I was going to touch on, like Ubisoft Plus coming to PlayStation Plus service and being added in there, but I feel like that's just not... 
it's not big enough of a news piece, but it's basically the way that uh, EA Play is added to Game Pass. They're pretty much going to be adding Ubisoft Plus to the, the all-new PlayStation Plus service, at least for the uh, premium. I don't know about the extra. I'm looking at the article right now. And I'm trying to break it down, but for sure it's not going to be in the essential. So it's going to be part of that uh, service, and so you know, and it's going to be bringing in the the typical Ubisoft. Yeah, it says right here for the extra and platinum tiers, uh, it's going to feature a curated selection of games. Twenty seven available at launch, and most of them are going to be the Ubis the usual Ubisoft flair. So Assassin's Creed Valhalla, The Division, For Honor. I think Mario Rap. Actually, no, not Mario Rabbits. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, um, a couple of others. You know, especially uh, the main. Oh, Far Cry, uh, Child of Light, Far Cry Four, South Park, Fresh Ball. You know, like the games from Ubisoft that they can afford to throw in for free on a service like that so that's going to be coming to the on you playstation plus which is actually already available now i think in asia but as we you know kind of roll through these next couple of weeks it's going to be, become more available in other parts of the world especially the americas here so uh only time will tell if i'm gonna pull the trigger on it for now i'm just gonna leave it alone to the essentials uh quite literally in the essential tier where i just need my online i just need my two games a month for free and the discounts and that's it i'm happy with that i don't need to be adding more and more stuff to my backlog so i'm pretty i'm pretty good on on that front and then i also have a very quick news story here about a game that i i knew i was interested in but i gotta be honest i kind of forgot about it. not because it didn't look interesting again it looked very stylish it looked very innovative um and it definitely looks like something that could run on the switch in fact i think it was through a nintendo direct that i found out about this game and i was like oh you know this actually looks kind of dope it's a game called replaced so it's kind of like a cyberpunk uh, action adventure platformer it's kind of like a side scroller while at the same time kind of peering through the 3d axis etc but it's all about like the depth of field you know i'm a sucker for games that play around with depth of field especially on a cinematic level and replace look to had been doing the same thing except now we're gonna have to wait a little while longer to play the game in 2023 as opposed to this year and that, that's the reason why i kind of forgot about this because i think for the longest time they kept saying 2022 but they never actually said it was coming in a specific window of this year so i getting pushed i'm kind of like well that's a bummer but uh, it, you know, being that it's also an indie game, I don't think we have to wait until like the end of 2023. It could be like in the first half. But basically, the the creators, uh, Sad Cat Studios, announced uh, the new release window via a tweet and the delay. And apparently, the reason for it is due to the ongoing war in Ukraine. So there are some kind of ties in with that. So it's not so much a COVID thing or a thing on the game as far as like. I mean, it's definitely a, a strain on the production, but it's not like the game is that huge or it was COVID, you know, making things a little more complicated. It was actually specifically the war in Ukraine. So there was going to be some direct correlations with that. So unfortunately, we're going to have to wait a little while longer to play that game. But here's the hoping that it's uh, ultimately a finished product, a great product. I'm looking forward to playing it. And like I said, it's looking like it's coming to the Switch. So... I'll definitely be picking it up on there. But the two quick stories that I definitely want, especially one in particular that caught my sincerest form of interest, that I looked at and went, "Yo, this is actually <laughs> a little bit on the um, a little bit on the nutty side," is that apparently, you know, while we're on the subject of multiverses and alternate timelines and all that stuff, especially within the Marvel Cinematic Universe after the likes of Spider-Man No Way Home and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, it is curious to, to kind of note and realize that there could have been an alternate timeline out there 
where Xbox was the one making Marvel exclusives and not PlayStation. This is from an article over at VideoGamesChronicle.com, and I think it's also been covered by a couple of other outlets here, saying Xbox turned Marvel down, leading to Spider-Man on PS4 exec reveals. An interview with a Marvel exec reveals that Microsoft passed on the chance for exclusivity. God damn it, guys. I mean, I'm sorry. I know that. And it's funny because on the one hand, I think, how how could that be? Because Spider-Man is still very much a Sony property. You would think that they would want to put it on Sony's console. But it looks like that might not always have been the case. In an ex- excerpt from Stephen L. Kent's 2021 book, The Ultimate History of Video Games Volume 2, as spotted on Reset Era, Executive Vice President and Head of Marvel Games, Jay Ong, explains how the company cut its earlier deal with Activision short in search of a better partnership. According to Ong, Marvel Games wasn't happy with the quality of the Spider-Man game being published by Activision, and the two companies mutually agreed to terminate their licensing deal early. Ong said that with the deal was made to walk away, Activision asked, what are you going to do with this IP after you get it back? To which Ong replied, I'm going to find a better home for it. According to Ong, Activision's response, good luck finding a unicorn. Ong said Marvel Games, I'm skipping a little ahead here, then went to both Xbox and PlayStation to see if either of them would be interested in forming an executive partnership, asking them, we don't have any big big console deals with anyone right now. What would you like to do? Microsoft's strategy, Ong recalls, was to focus on its own IP and as such, it decided to pass on the offer. Damn, dude. You guys, you know, like, here we are years later thinking, oh, Xbox don't have an exclusive. Think about it. At one point, Spider-Man could have been an Xbox exclusive. Hmm. Huh. In an alternate reality, in an alternate timeline, Spider-Man could have been an Xbox exclusive. It's kind of nuts to think about. It re- it really really is, but at the same time, it also partly makes sense for it to be on PlayStation PlayStation because again, it's Sony and Spider-Man technically owns Sony. It's crazy that on the video game medium, on the video game front, they could have been up for grabs for either console um console platform here. And then Sony, however, was more receptive. I'm continuing to read from the article. I sat down with these two execs from PlayStation third party, Adam Boys and John Drake. I do. I am familiar with Adam Boys. He's the one that was on that. Uh, infamous video of with uh, Shuhei Yoshida where they're like, here's how to share a game on PS4. And they just passed the game case to each other and that was an ultimate burn on Xbox's um, uh, sh- game sharing functionality back in 2013 where they were making things DRM locked and unfriendly and people were upset w- with all that stuff. And, uh, and this was in August of 2014, so not that long after said video and said review of the PlayStation 4 in 2013 in a conference room in Burbank. Hey, Burbank. Everything happens in Burbank. I said, and this is Ong saying this from the article, we have a dream that that is possible and that we could beat Arkham and have one game at least and maybe multiple games that could drive adoption of your platform. Obviously, they're referencing the Arkham games from Rocksteady, which is funny because that's the comparison that almost everybody makes with Marvel Spider-Man. It's that it's basically an Arkham game, but with Spider-Man. Sony reportedly responded by offering to make a AAA PlayStation-exclusive Spider-Man game and handed the project to Insomniac, which was independent at the time, but was considered one of Sony's most important partners. I mean, we could all pretty much agree at this point that the rest is history. 
The resulting game, Marvel's Spider-Man, was widely critically acclaimed and reportedly went to sell more than 20 million copies, with its spin-off, Miles Morales, selling a further 6.5 million. It's because he's black, isn't it? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, in the U.S., I think what also had to do with it is that a lot of people are trying to wait for the PS5, to get themselves a PS5 so they could experience Miles Morales, like, in its entirety, in, in like the way it's meant to be played, you know, uh, in all seriousness. In the U.S., Spider-Man is now one of the so Sony's most successful video game releases ever. Insomniac recently announced Spider-Man 2 with a teaser trailer, yada yada, and then they're recently, you know, talking about uh, Tony Todd playing Venom and all these other stuff. So, yeah, it is nuts that Microsoft turned down Spider-Man. I, I, well, here's, you know, in playing the devil's advocate here, I'm going to say that maybe, just maybe, it's because they... They might have not worded it that way. Maybe they came saying, hey, we have these Marvel things. What do you want to do? And they never really put the emphasis on what it would be like to make a Spider-Man game. And at the time, Xbox, and, you know, think about it. This was in 2014. Um, this was 2012, 2013. The, it, the, the one little, like I said, um, devil's advocate caveat that I can come up with here is that Phil Spencer wasn't uh, the, uh, the one at the helm here. It was... Um, Dan Matrick, I think was his name. You know, the guy with the, you know, slick down hair. Like, I always got, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it right here on the podcast. I always got a bad vibe from that guy. Like, he just was not in tune with what would have made Xbox important and essential for the video game landscape. He always looked like he just he had his head in his ass and was like, no, we want it to be, you know, entertainment. We want this thing to be like a entertainment hub so you can watch movies and do all these like other corporate stuff. And it wasn't about the games. And he just had his soul focused on that. And he wasn't like listening to anybody. And finally in came Phil Spencer, uh, it, that was more receptive to being like, no, you know, I'm a gamer. Let's play games. Let's make Xbox about the games. Yeah. You can still watch your entertainment on that, but that's not the emphasis. That's not going to be our strategy. Um, so I feel like they, there was something there. There was something there. It was Dan Magic who was like, all like, no, you know, we want to focus on this entertainment stuff. And he's probably the one that did the thumbs down gladiator thing towards Marvel potentially having exclusivity over at Xbox. And therefore PlayStation was like, gimme. And there we, you know, the rest is history. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like that had something to do with it. That's my ultimate theory there. Uh, so thank God for, for Phil Spencer turning Xbox all the way around. Um, kind of a shameless plug here, even though it's not really, you know, my catharsis to want to, you know, put this out there. You know, I have no stake in this. But ultimately, I feel like you guys, anybody, whether you're devoted to Sony or Xbox or even Nintendo, I would highly recommend checking out the documentary, the multi-part documentary on YouTube about the making of Xbox from the first Xbox back in 1999 when they were conceiving the damn thing and Halo along with it to now the new Xbox Series X. It's like a five-part thing, but somewhere in there, they do shed light of how much they fucked up with the Xbox One being DRM only and the how they wanted to put emphasis on the whole entertainment stuff and not on the games and how that's kind of screwed them in the in the back at that point and they have to make a turnaround and Phil Spencer came in. They do a good a pretty decent job of breaking that down. They could have done a little bit better, but it's still a worthwhile watch. It's free, it's up on YouTube. You guys can check that out. And I remember um Seeing that part of the documentary and going, yeah, you know, I kind of that's when I was becoming a bit more, um, uh, you know, 
open viewed if that makes any sense to like gaming news and stuff like that because prior to that i was just you know keeping my ears and eyes out for like the big announcements that i that i cared about like the specific stuff for only the stuff that i was interested in and it wasn't until like that newest generation ps4 and xbox one that i actually started to follow the news even for stuff that i didn't care about on a personal level like it, 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 like it wasn't like the newest Spider-Man, the newest Uncharted. Even if it was a game that I wasn't interested in, I was still going like, okay, what does this mean for the industry? You know what I'm saying? And of course, I was starting to kind of take that material and making YouTube videos about it, making content about it. Uh, but that's where I started to just you know be a bit more open-minded as far as like an analyst, as far as like someone to keep an ear out for the news and how this could have a ripple effect on the stuff that I do love and I do care about and I do have a stake in. Um, and so witnessing it firsthand, I'm like, yeah, now this whole thing about Spider-Man having potentially been an Xbox exclusive uh, makes a lot more sense. It kind of fits in to that timeline. It only makes you wonder what, what timeline would have been like if you needed to buy an Xbox to play Spider-Man and would have and whether or not that would have been a system seller for Xbox. That, that, that is nuts. And keeping things Marvel-themed, it looks like that Marvel game Midnight Suns might be coming out very soon. This is an article over from IGN, as reported by Video Games Chronicle. So there they are again, Video Games Chronicle and Reddit user Long John Silver. <laughs> okay, uh, spotted the rating below, and it shows a picture, a screenshot of from the Reddit post that pretty much showcases this little leak, uh, which pegs the XCOM-style game as suitable for those aged 15 years and over. It looks like this is over from. Peggy. I don't think it's from the ESRB. I might be wrong, but it looks like it's been submitted for rating. And as IGN kind of notes here in the article, and I uh, pretty much agree at this point, games are usually only presented to ratings boards like the ESRB and Peggy once they're in a complete or near complete state so that an accurate assessment of suitability can be given, meaning Midnight Suns may be almost ready to be released. Uh, and this was uh, an official rating in South Korea, as it notes right here at the beginning of the article. The games rating and administration committee gave Midnight Suns its suitable for 15 years and over rating as it includes bad language. <laughs> it says in the description, bad language and violence towards living things. Violence towards living things. Is it just me or is violence just by itself, by definition, an, you know, hurtful towards living things? If you punch a wall that's not violence that's just vandalism <laughs> i don't know I, I don't know but i'll probably look too much into it uh combat in the game is largely similar to the rebooted xcom series but players take on the role of the hunter a customizable character that play that works with superheroes including iron man ghost rider and wolverine the inclusion of these characters was inspired by the marvel comics and gameplay footage released in september last year gives fans a good look at how midnight suns will actually work including its collectible card system it was announced in august 2020 jesus it's been that long it's oh my oh my god! It's been almost two years since the game was officially really uh, revealed by developer Firaxis Games, with an original release date of March 2022. But a delay was later announced in November that pushed Midnight Suns to the latter half of the year. Well, see, here's the thing: they said the latter half of the year, being that this game has been submitted for rating, uh, and it's set to be released for pretty much every platform, so PS4 and 5. Xbox One and the series, so X's and S, Switch and PC, and being that it's you know XCOM style with the gameplay, I figured you know what this could definitely run on the Switch. It's probably not gonna look as pretty, but it definitely sounds like it can make compromises to fit on the Switch. Uh, with that said, like 
does it look like an interesting game? I do. Like, like from the little bit of gameplay that we have seen, uh, it does kind of pique my interest, and it is Marvel-related. It is also cool to see that it's tackling the Midnight Suns properties, so pretty much all of your much more dark and gothic characters from the pantheon of Marvel heroes, so obviously Ghost Rider, Doctor Strange, um, Punisher, uh, and I think they are even throwing in for good measure Wolverine, even though he's not really part of the Midnight Suns from what I hear, or uh, there was another character. There was another character, and of course Scarlet Witch, and then a couple of other characters that deal with the mystic arts and dark arts and, and things like that. Um, but they are taking some liberties. I think Captain America is in there, and people are like, why is Cap in there? He's not a Midnight Sun. But they do, some of these heroes that are not, not part of the Midnight Suns, they're very obviously trying to dress them up to look all, I don't want to say medieval, but have like this more darker, you know, more nuanced look that fits the property, that fits that tone. Um, so I remember looking, looking at that and kind of laughing a little bit because it feels like they're trying a little too hard. Outside of that, though, if they can nail a good balanced XCOM style gameplay, I might be down. I tried playing the first rebooted XCOM, Enemy Unknown, and I could not get into it. I don't know if it had something to do with the permadeath, which I think I remember reading some time ago that this game was not going to have. It was going to be a bit more forgiving on the difficulty, but at the same time still have something refined about it that can be addictive and, and like very compelling for people to play through. So that might rope me in a little bit outside of the Marvel aesthetic. Uh, because here's the deal. Is that even though I could not get into XCOM because of the permadeath and because of all the little classes and details that I needed to read and get into and strategize. And I was like, I, I don't know why, but I just, I'm not getting into this. I feel like I'm just going through the motions. And yet for some fucking weird reason, I absolutely loved Mario Rabbids Kingdom Battle. And it's also XCOM style gameplay. But it didn't have too much overwhelming like details about the gameplay about what class does what versus what and what traits you have to you know swap out for this and this and that. And it didn't have the permadeath, so you know I could like replay certain scenarios or certain you know matches and do it in a different style to be like, well, this is what you did before. Try doing something a little bit different this time. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, like I don't know why it just compelled me to want to go through it, and I beat the game, and I was like, that was a genuinely pleasant surprise, look at that, so I'm hoping that maybe Marvel Midnight Suns will be kind of veering more towards what I loved about Mario Rabbids than what I, uh, you know, could, did, wasn't able to attach myself to in XCOM, that would be awesome, We'll have to wait and see if there's if there's going to be a much more formal reveal as we go into the back half of the of this year that it's set to be released because it definitely reinforces that it will be released in the second half of 2022. Not only because they said they were pushing it via the delay, but also because they submitted it for for rating here in South Korea, and it kind of lines up. You know, they said last half of 2022 that could be hypothetically as early as say august because august is officially the second half i mean we're already about to enter june here we're practically at june it's like yeah you know another month and we're officially in that window it's only a matter of time before they probably probably around e3 time even though there's no official e3 kind of ceremony or 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 or, or get together or event there's still going to be your e3 style kind of conferences you know xbox got has one with bethesda uh, who's to say that maybe Sony, PlayStation, or Nintendo's not going to have their own directs? And then somewhere in there, depending on who's willing to give them their time of day, 
Um, Fair Firaxis Games might be like, hey, can we show a little bit of Midnight Suns with you guys? And maybe Sony, because of the whole tie with PlayStation, with uh, I'm sorry, with Spider Man, like we mentioned before in the previous article, previous news story, they'll be like, sure, you know, we have a state of play for the summer, the sh- summer showcase coming up here, or you have Jeff Keighley's Video Game Awards or Game Awards Summer Showfest, whatever it's called. Maybe you might be in there, and maybe they'll officially reveal the game with brand new gameplay cinematics uh delve into delve into the story to see what it's all about and then finally at the end be like hey august or september or october boom release date boom there it is it's happening it's been submitted for ratings so chances are it's not going to get delayed again it's finally going to go gold or at least it's close to going gold and we'll see it by year's end and i'm I'm hoping for it because it's cool to see that we're getting a new marvel game except it's not it's not another spider-man it's not another behind the, the 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 back sort of thing and more importantly, it's not going to be another Avengers. <laughs> it's not going to be tackling that material, and instead, it's going to be much more strategy based and just be all in game. You know, no microtransactions, which I think they covered that before, saying there's not going to be any microtransactions. Everything that you unlock in the game is going to be in game, from what I remember reading, unless things have changed. You know, I'm not going to completely be uh, er- not so much arrogant, but oblivious, naive. To the possibility that they might have uh, turned heel on that and been like, "Well, you can, you know, buy the battle pass or whatever." You know, I'm not, I, I'm not ruling that possibility out. But we'll just simply have to wait and see. For now, though, that'll wrap up for episode three of season four of the Dark Spider Cast. Thank you guys for tuning in. Of course, like I always mention, you guys can stay in touch via the Twitter and the Instagram at Dark Spider David. Uh, check out the website darkspiderdavid.com. There's also some merch there that you guys can uh, kind of peruse, take a look at, and uh, if anything tickles your fancy, add it to your cart. And then, of course, you have the Niche Channel, which is where I upload twice a week all of the Spider-Man, Batman-centric content that I like to endlessly talk about like i mentioned earlier in the podcast this week we had the 4k release of the batman so i tackled the steelbook as well as the uh, walmart gift set and those videos are already up they're doing pretty well and of course i'm gonna have some more action figure stuff with marvel legends uh mcfarlane dc multiverse uh, figures coming up here very very soon so stay tuned for that and uh that really about does it so thank you guys once again for listening in and i'll catch you guys next week in the meantime stay humble